Well, good evening and welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio, where you are the gas in my tank. Uh, thanks for tuning in tonight, and uh, thanks uh, goes out to Zingaya, that great musical group uh, from Nevada, for that snippet uh, from their musical repertoire, and that uh, that one is called Nomad's Land, and it always sort of makes me do these uh, belly dance moves, uh, something about the beginning of it. You know, I can just imagine belly dancers with zills in their fingers. And anyway, uh, maybe even snakes on their shoulders. Who knows? (laughs) Well, tonight, first thing I want to tell you is uh, I went to see the new Michael Moore movie this week. Uh, I talked about it last week. Uh, and I got to see it a few days ago. And uh, if you don't know about it yet, you've got to see this movie. It's called Where to Invade Next. Now, I know that's a weird title, maybe. But the premise is uh, Michael Moore is going around the world exploring, not invading, these other countries to see what they've got that we need to adopt here in America. Well, you know, he starts in Italy, then goes to multiple other countries, and what he finds over and over and over again is, you know what? Americans are really getting screwed and exploited. And, you know, here we are doing the most backward and ignorant things all in the name of greed and corporate interests rather than the interests of the people. You know, I want to honestly tell you, I maybe cried three times during this movie. Uh, My husband reached over and put his hand on uh, my knee and squeezed it because, you know, here I was, you know, he could hear me. You know, uh, I I just, I, I couldn't help it because it is so pathetic, so pathetic how we're being exploited. And you know what? I know uh, the movie is only open to limited release, but I found out today that you can actually see it free, uh, which blew me away. Um, But, you know, it doesn't surprise me because Michael Moore is really one of these guys. He's not in it for the money. He is a teacher. He is a contemporary bard, uh, if you ask me. Um, You can actually find it on Facebook. Um, I think you go to Where to Invent next or maybe Michael Moore on Facebook and there are links there. If you have any trouble at all finding it, email me. Um, I've even posted it on my uh, Facebook page. But you know, about the movie, you know, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, you've got to see this movie because it will give you more ammunition with undecided voters. If you're not a Bernie Sanders supporter, then you've really got to see this movie and educate yourself because if I hear or read another person saying Bernie's supporters just want free stuff. I think my hair will light on fire, especially if you're poor or the, uh, you know, disappearing middle class. Because, uh, you know, we don't ever hear anyone talking about the quality of life here because, you know what, Americans have so little of it. We only hear about the lazy takers or that if you're poor, you must be lazy and not working hard enough. No wonder politicians try to demonize Europe and say, look the other way, they're all communists. 
you know, look, these countries aren't perfect. I'm not saying that. Uh, Michael Moore wasn't saying that. They have their own problems. But in so many ways, they are using ta uh, people's tax dollars to do things for them instead of corporate welfare and war. You know, they have high-speed trains for transportation. They have better schools. They have social safety nets that don't leave the elderly living in poverty or kids hungry or vets sleeping under uh, overpasses. They have weeks of vacation, healthy food, family leave to take care of newborns or elderly parents. They have educational systems to die for. And you know what? Their prison systems, they actually rehab people in real and meaningful ways and treat their prisoners with dignity. You know, not just turn them into worse criminals uh, than what they were when maybe they even went to prison. Do you know women in Tunisia Tunisia, Tunisia, okay, we think of that as a backward third world country. They have better rights than American women do, for heaven's sake, when it comes to their reproductive rights. That one really blew me away. You know, we are so backward here. Uh, we have been brainwashed to think we're the best country on the planet. We are really just the biggest bully and have the most bullets and bombs. Therefore, we have the leverage. You know, that might be good for some people getting rich off their stock portfolios, investing in war, or, or corporations who exploit their workers at home and abroad and don't pay their taxes, but it really sucks for average people. And, you know, I'll say it. I'll say it. I have more to, we, we have more to be afraid of from corporations than we have from terrorists. I posted a few things on my Facebook today about the damage corporations are doing people, the lawsuits, how corporations are causing people to get cancer. I mean, they're, they are totally out of control. They, corporations have run amok. So please, go see this movie. It, again, it's called Where to Invade Next. Take your friends, talk about it. It's amazing. You know, Michael Moore has courageously been making movies that challenge the status quo, from his movie about the prolifer uh, proliferation of guns in our society, that was the Columbine movie, uh, to corporations destroying cities like Flint, Michigan, which is now, uh, you know, under the gun because of that Republican governor who. Uh, gave the okay to poison them all uh, when they switched the water supply. Um, you know, he, he's uh, done documentaries about the questionable things that happened on 9-11. And, you know, nobody wants to talk about a lot of these things lest they be uh, ridiculed. You know, they make Michael Moore out to be, you know, some, some crazy extremist. But, you know, he's really a man of the people. He's always been for the people. And I have to say, it's a lot like Bernie Sanders who wants to make real change in our lives not say everything is too hard and it can't be done. You know, Bernie Sanders is the FDR of our time. You know darn well uh, people said the same thing about FDR in his day, and, you know, he ended up being elected to the presidency four times because he was a hero of the people. It's just people who have no will to change things, people who are benefiting from the way things are today that say none of these things can be changed. And speaking of Bernie, um, I've organized some phone banking for him this uh, coming Sunday at the Goddess Temple of Orange County. Uh, you can come if you're in the area 
area, come to Sunday services, stay for the social hour, and join us afterwards for uh, privately sponsored phone banking. And you know what? No matter if you've done never done it before uh, or if you want to just come and listen and give the phone callers moral support, do that too. Uh, but they do give you direction, uh, even a script for you to refer to if you're not sure what to say. And uh, you know what? If you want to phone bank from home, you can actually do that too. And we have a number of people who are going to stay home because uh, they're not in the area and can't be with us. Uh, they're going to use their phone and their computer and do it at the same time we're doing it, which is 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific, as a sort of socio-political, spiritual attunement uh, to help get the word out uh, about um, what Bernie is really about. Because you know what? He's trying to change the system. He's trying to change the status quo and bring fairness uh, you know, into the equation instead of this lopsided situation that has so many suffering and exploited. And, you know, speaking of the Goddess Temple, um, you may have heard me say it before, but uh, uh, they have a museum there now, and uh, you can view the beautiful museum exhibits of the Sacred Feminine from the Paleolithic to the present. Uh, they have Goddess Spiritual Celebrations every Sunday, rain or shine, from 11 to 1230. Fourth Sunday, which is this Sunday, is for all genders. Uh, all other Sundays, uh, at least for now, or for adult women. Uh, every Friday from 5 to 7, you can enjoy the Temple's Venus Hour, Orange County's best happy hour with libations, snacks, music, movies, uh, and you can meet uh, new people all free. Uh, so if you're, you know, that sounds cool. If you want to, you know, meet some like-minded uh, gals and guys, uh, check out uh, their website, Goddess Temple OC. Dot org. That's Goddess Temple OC uh, dot org. And uh, tonight, uh, well, I guess you could say that was my What's the Buzz segment for tonight. It uh, just came up a little earlier than expected. Uh, but tonight we have two great guests. Uh, first up is Dwayne Sternholm uh, discussing the co-creation of the greatest and highest good. Uh, he started the United Earth Ecclesia organization, and we'll discuss that. My second guest has been on the show before, Tim Ward. Maybe you recognize his name. Tim and his wife partnered to write uh, a new book, the Master Communicator's Handbook, because he believes communication creates transformation. He'll tell us more about that, so stay tuned in with me through the end of the show. But right now, I'm going to say hello to Dwayne, and um, I'm uh, looking for his bio here, and I will introduce you to him uh, by way of that. Uh, Dwayne Sternholm. Uh, he has a pen name, Dane Starland. He was born in La Junta, Colorado, a small town in the southeastern corner of the state. He was raised uh, nearby uh, Chiraw, an even smaller town. He graduated co-valedictorian from his high school and continued his education at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, uh, where he earned a BS degree in psychology. Uh, he's, he's seeking to explore the world in search of it, seeking to explore the world in search of adventure. He joined the Peace Corps, spent two years in the Philippines working in rice irrigation water management in the province of Pampanga, and subsequently uh, teaching introductory social studies at the University of the Philippines at Los Banos Laguna. Uh, 
he says uh, in his bio, recovering from reverse cultural shock. Upon his return to Colorado, he attended the uh, Illis School of Theology, I think, in Denver, earning a Master of Arts in Religion degree, specializing in religious philosophy and metaphysics. Soon after graduation from um, uh, LIF, uh, he was fortunate to attend a live speech by the renowned world citizen and inventor or uh, Buckmaster Fuller, who inspired him on his current 35-year mission of changing the prevalent mindset of humanity from competition to cooperation and co- uh, collaboration in order to co-create the greatest and higher good. And to that end, he found the unprecedented member organization, the United Earth Ecclesia. And uh, you can imagine, dear listeners, why I invited him on the show. Those three words, comp- uh, you know, freedom from competition, uh, co- cooperation, and collaboration. Because uh, here on the show, myself and I know a lot of you are mentors of Rhianne Eisler, uh, who talks about uh, the power of partnership. So when I learned about... Um, uh, our dear friend uh, tonight, Dwayne, I decided got to talk to this guy, got to have him on the show because, uh, you know, he's part of the paradigm shift. Um, you know, uh, this is an idea that is uh, making the rounds, and if I dare say so myself, this is exactly what Bernie Sanders is talking about, too. So, anyway, uh, welcome to the show, Dwayne. Thanks uh, for being with us tonight. Oh, thank you, Karen. I'm uh, a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Great. Well, um, so you you started out uh, being in service, obviously, um, uh, you know, rather than, uh, you know, playing around or heading to Wall Street or something like that. Uh, you know, you, you went uh, to the Philippines to uh, help uh, poor people feed themselves, as, uh, I guess, what the Rice uh, Irrigation Water Management uh, Program was. Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> if they had the right... right uh... I worked in rice irrigation where if they used the right strains of rice, they could get uh, three crops a year instead of one, so that basically would triple their output. So that was that was very rewarding. I I, I wasn't much attracted to the corporate life at, at that point in my life. I I uh, I think I got the uh, volunteer gene from my mother. She was always volunteering for this or that, and so I think it just passed along to me. So. That's what well, I've been you know, doing. I could prob- I also- yeah, I, I could probably say that. Yeah, I, I could say the same thing. You know, my mother always fought for the underdog, and I think I must have got her her gene and me too. Um, but you know, I'm curious. You know, doing this rice uh, rice irrigation stuff. Did I, in that day were you running into problems like we have today with uh, Monsanto and uh, you know the pesticides or GMOs or anything like that, or was that uh, before <clears throat> all of this? That was really, be- this is the mid-70s, so that was really before all of that. I did some of my study uh, in preparation of my job at the International Rice Research Institute, which is uh, in Los Baños, Laguna, which is south of Manila. And there they had people from all over the world, not just not just Filipinos, uh, working on rice research and irrigation and, and different strains of rice. You know, the rice has... There's has more the most strains of any plant in the world is is rice. Rice has ah. the most strains of any types of plant. So 
there's a lot of research to be done, and but that was way before Monsanto and all of that. At least that was uh, came out in the press as, as far as that goes. Uh, we okay. never heard anything about that. And, and you know, I'm going to ask you something that might sound like a strange question, but um, <clears throat> you know, there there are goddesses all around the world. You know, still in contemporary society, and uh, I know in the East, they the you know people who work the land and have the rice paddies, they still uh, worship a rice goddess. Um, I wonder if the people in the Philippines did. Not so much, um, due to the Spanish influence. Uh, of the Filipino culture, they ruled the. They were ruled by Spain for 300 years after Magellan uh, claimed them for Spain. So they were very, very. At least the northern half of the the, the country was very strong uh, Catholic, and and they they did blend some of that Catholicism into their local religions, but they really didn't really have a a, a rice goddess, so to speak. Uh, that they okay. that they worshipped. Now that may have been different in the southern half of the the uh, country, which was mostly Muslim. But uh, I never we weren't able to go down there at that time because it was martial law and uh, and some of the Filipino Philippine constabulary who went down there would come back with their heads chopped off, so they wouldn't let us go down there. Wow, that was a dangerous place. So were you taking your life in your hands, uh, even? Uh, going there and, and was, uh, you know, going there with the Peace Corps? Well, not so much. Uh, it was martial law, so that, you know, uh, there was Philippine Constabulary, which is like the National Police Force, uh, standing on the corners with their M16s all over the place, and they had an, a curfew. You had to be off the streets by midnight. Um, but for the most part, Filipinos really love Americans because we, in essence, gave them their freedom after World War II. So, so they okay. uh, they love Americans. So I, I, I only a couple of times in the whole two years I was there did I really feel a little threatened or anything like that. But for okay. the most part, the Filipinos are very nice people, very hospitable. Give you the shirt off their back, yeah. They, if they even if they only had one shirt. <laughs> um, so, all right. So you go do that, and uh, you know, in, in in your in your early years, and then you uh, come back home to Denver, and you uh, rub shoulders or or introduce to this guy or uh, Buckmaster Fuller. I've never Buck heard Mr. of him. Fuller, who, yeah. Who is he, he? He was the inventor of the geodesic dome. Ah, uh, you know, okay. That sculpture that you know the domes type sculpture that looks like it's made out of triangles. That is the most efficient space in terms of materials to space enclosed that you can that you can make. So it's the most efficient um, three-dimensional space that you can make. And uh, Buckminster Fuller was all about doing more and more with less and less. In the speech he talked about how in the future we were going to be doing more and more with less and less. And he he brought up the uh, issue of computers, which in the mid-'70s, you know, they filled a whole room at that time. And now right. the, you, you have that com- that same computing power in the palm of your hand with your smartphone. Um, and so that's what he he was all about. He was, he was one of the first people that I ever heard that was a big proponent of world citizenship. He really felt that we were all just uh, travelers on spaceship Earth, 
and that we should really embrace the fact that we're all one people and we're all just Earth citizens rather than, than all these artificial barriers that we've put up between ourselves. You right. know, like what, whether it be religion or race or or languages or whatever, country uh, country of origin. Um, he he just disavowed all those. He 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 was a big proponent of, of really we're all just one people on on spaceship Earth. But uh, one of his he has a lot of uh, quotes, and one of my favorite ones of his was, "You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete." And that's what he challenged the crowd during his speech. Uh, he said that we had to change our mindset from being com- competitive to being more cooperative and collaborative, or else, the, in essence, the human race is going to be doomed. And if you, what you were talking about earlier, as far as the the corporate um, corporations run amok, <laughs> run amok, yeah, in the United States, that's that's where they get all of that that basis for their existence is is in competition. Unfortunately, yeah. capitalism is very comp- competitive and and so it that bleeds over and it and it, it affects our whole lives where um we're basically just all the same. Uh we're all just made out of stardust. Our our bodies are made out of stardust and our our souls are made out of love. So uh um there's really no difference in, in what we are. I, I like but, that uh, quote. Is that is that is that a quote of yours, Dwayne? Yes, that's a quote of mine. Well, you know, um, I I was fortunate enough in the '90s. I was a part-time travel agent, and um, my husband and I got the opportunity to travel a lot because it was really cheap. Sure. And um, you know, I and I think travel sort of opens you up to that same idea that we really are all the same. And uh, you know, I've always felt that uh, Americans, you know, because we're isolated on this you know, on this continent of North America by these two oceans on either side of us, and we don't really get to see the rest of the world. I think that makes us very myopic and insular. And, you know, it it makes it so much easier to bomb somebody in another country, you know, because they're a different color and a different religion, and, you know, they maybe speak a different language, and they're the other. You know, we don't stop to think of them as somebody just like us with the same desires and hopes and dreams and um and right to be alive you know yeah um, i totally agree with you you know that's one one of the big takeaways i got from my peace corps experiences i was i was pretty young i was 22 23 uh, but the the big takeaway i learned that hey we're all the same everybody laughs everybody cries everybody wants uh, just to raise their family in peace they want uh, their kids to do better than they did and it, we're uh, we all have the same the same goal, uh, right? Just, right. Uh, all these things that come in between us that we all, all these artificial barriers that that we've put up that tend to uh, tend to keep us apart. We need to just right. break down those barriers. So, um, so are you familiar with Rianne Eisler by any chance, and and all of her teachings at the Partnership Society? Unfortunately, I'm not, uh, but I would uh, really like to learn more about her. 
Well, you know, I'll send you some links uh, after the show. She's been uh, she's been writing on this for quite a long time, uh, and uh, I, I think she'd be right up your alley too. Um, but uh, but you know, let's talk more about uh, what you've what you've done with uh, your inspiration. How did you go from um, you know hearing uh, you know this fella with his with his wonderful ideas to actually starting the United Earth Ecclesia? Well, uh, like I said, during the speech, he challenged the audience to find a way to come up with making that change from from competition to cooperation. And at the time, I thought to myself, well, how would you even start that process? You know, there's so many different languages and people and religions and cultures and everything in the world. How would you even start that? And, of course, this is, again, back in about 1980 and uh, really before the Internet came along. And so I tried a few things. I, I wrote some papers, and I tried to distribute those, and um, nothing was working really well. And then, then the Internet came along, and I saw the power of the social media and how people just kind of glommed onto that and how, you know, social media is a great thing. Uh, it, it helps us keep in touch with our, our uh, relatives and our friends. I, I've been able to connect with some of my Danish relatives in Denmark that I never even knew I existed really <laughs> and uh, uh which is really cool but the the thing is that it doesn't really do a lot for the promoting the positive evolution of humankind so I thought well how can we take this this technology which the internet's the most powerful technology man's ever made how can we take this technology and and use it to to make that change and in mindset from competition to cooperation. And so I came up with the United Earth Ecclesia. And the the word Ecclesia comes from the Greek word Ecclesia, which means uh, an assembly of citizens. It's not, a, it's not a religious organization. It's not a government organization. It's just an assembly of, of citizens, you and me and, and John Doe and Jane Doe and, and just regular people. And, you know, a lot of Christians ask, well, what would Jesus do? Well, what we're asking at the United Earth Ecclesia is, what would the average um, trustworthy, loving, hardworking Earth citizen do? What, what do they really want? What, what changes do they want to see in, in how we do things? And how can we change from that co competitive mindset to the cooperative mindset? And so this is a very much a member-driven organization. We're, we're just getting started. Uh, we've got a, a website up uh, that kind of has two parts. There's the non-member area, and then there's the member area. It doesn't cost anything to become a member because I didn't want to you know, keep somebody out because they couldn't pony up a few bucks for membership fee. Uh, but it would it does require that you attest to a... Uh, what we call the Earth Citizen Covenant. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read that to you. Sure, go right ahead. Okay, United Earth Citizen, Earth, uh, United Earth Ecclesia Earth Citizen Covenant reads as follows. As active United Earth citizens, we promise that we will not harm or trespass in any way on the person and property of any other United Earth citizen. That includes a promise to uphold the bonds of trust that connect all United Earth citizens who have sworn to this covenant. As loving United Earth citizens, we promise to love one another and act toward others as we would like them to act toward us. 
As rational United Earth citizens, we promise to promote world peace and protect every United Earth citizen's right to total individual freedom, as long as that freedom does not harm the person or property of any other United Earth citizen. Finally, as responsible United Earth citizens, we promise to strive to do everything we possibly can to protect and improve the ecology of our communal environment. So there's nothing in this that's really earth-shaking. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of those things come back from the Bible and uh, various sources that uh, that I've kind of put together. But if, if uh, for example, if you had the choice to have a relationship, uh, say a, a romantic relationship with somebody who had attested to this or who had not attested to it, who would you choose? Or if you had right. a, a choice to do business with somebody uh, who had attested to it or who had not, who would you choose? Or if you had a choice to elect someone to office, whether it be uh, mayor or governor or city council or president or senator, who would you choose? Uh, you would probably want to choose somebody that's like-minded like you. So um, what we're trying to do is build up an association of trustworthy individuals and once we get into get uh, sig- significant numbers where we would have some clout, uh, we'll be able to um, basically decide what the most impor- important and pressing questions are that we have, what's the most important thing that we need to deal with first. And then after that, and we'll have poll- we have polls on the, on the website where people can vote on and offer suggestions and vote on on what the most important and most pressing questions are. And then once we've decided what the one or two top ones are, then we'll go through the same process and and determine what what is the best action plan to deal with this problem. Is it is it boycott? Is it electing like-minded people to office? Is it sit-ins? Is it well, I don't know. It's, it's whatever the the majority feels would be the most appropriate. And so okay. in that sense, we're we're changing that mindset from being one of competitive to one of cooperative, where we're all working together towards the same goals. Yeah, I mean, I can see you're kind of of the uh, mindset, uh, you know, do unto others, you know. Um, it's sort exactly. of the golden rule. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, and, and some people might think that's oversimplistic, but, you know, in this day and age, you know, in this um, – uh, this climate that we live in, you know, uh, and, and it, it's it's a shame that we have to remind people of that, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, one of my last books that came out, I had a chapter in it. Uh, it's a compilation of different talks I'd given to church groups or, you know, private and public groups and things, and one of them was, um, you know, talking about the values of Star Trek society, you know, that uh-huh. uh, we used We used to be like that. You know, we used to be about the common good and the highest good. But somehow things, uh, you know, it it was about, uh, uh, you know, I forget Spock had this phrase. I remember as he's dying with William Shatner, Captain Kirk, and he said, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And, um, uh, you know, but yet today, you know, we have so many people who've adopted this, you know, Ayn, uh, Ayn Rand philosophy 
You know, it's all about them, and it's, right. you know, the individual and uh, survival of the fittest and pull yourself up from your bootstraps or you're not worth it and uh, all of this kinds of stuff. And uh, I don't know where it all comes from, but I don't think it really does humanity any good. No, not at all. If you look, I've done some research into psychological studies as far as what has the better outcome when people are competitive or whether they're cooperative. And by far, the cooperation mode far outweighs the benefits for the group as a whole than the competitive yeah. one. Well, even nature. I mean, um, I was reading this study the other day that said uh, nature prefers um, altruism to selfishness. Uh, and evolution, too. Evolution, I think, also, um, uh, uh, you know, prefers altruism. So, you know, it's this idea of cooperation, um, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, we should get that through our heads. <laughs> well, unfortunately, um, we've been enculturated with this competitive model ever since we were in first grade, you know. It's, oh, you got to beat that other kid out to get the A in the class or or, yeah. or, or in sports, and, you know, a certain amount of competition is not bad. It's just a matter of when you make that competition your end-all or be-all, and and you you put your whole self-worth into that competition rather than, than, than using it just for what it is. It's more of an entertainment type of thing when you play games or, you know, watch a football game or something like that. That kind of competition is fine, but when when you're – when you're a, a drug company and you're trying to uh, make new drugs just so you can make more money rather than trying to heal people, that's that's the wrong kind of competition. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden, you know, the vice president was on TV the other day, he was being interviewed, and, you know, he's on this um, on this campaign now since his son died of cancer to uh, try to get behind the pharmaceutical companies to encourage them to find the cure soon. And uh, and he said, they literally told me that we have to force them to do it because everything is so geared toward profits. Right. And, you know, and I, and I so believe that, you know. I mean, I, I've become such a cynic and a skeptic. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that, you know, on some days you'll hear me say there's probably a cure for cancer, but, you know, people are making too much money off of it to uh, actually let it be out there in the world. I mean, the same thing like with Tesla. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Tesla had figured out a way for us all to have uh, you know, energy, but instead, no, we have to, you know, pay these companies, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, have energy to have our electricity. Um, you know, I, I've just really gotten to the point where, uh, while, of course, they're good corporations, uh, I have to really strive to remind myself of that because it feels like, to me, the corporations have really become the enemy. Right. Unfortunately, we've we've kind of allowed this to happen by our laissez-faire attitude, kind of you might say. Uh, we have to take responsibility that the state of the world is in is in the state it's in because of what we've done, and we're the only ones that can really change it. So we have yeah. to make a concerted effort to to make that change. And my small attempt here at at, at gathering a, a, an association of trustworthy individuals is just a step in that direction. 
uh, one thing I've, I've I've been enlightened to is is in this process I've met a lot of other people that have the same ideas, and we're just well we all need to get together in, in a common forum and, and hash out the house uh, hash out the best solutions and then work towards them in mass. Right, yeah. You have to, yeah, power in numbers or through uh, money, you know. Um, yeah. So now, now you have a you have a book out. Uh, tell me the title again. Actually, I have I have two books. Um, um, one is called the uh, the Earth Citizens Guide to Co-creating the Greatest and Highest Good, and then the other one is um, a little more fun. It's it's uh, of course the Name, the name of the organization is United Earth Ecclesia, and the initials are UEE. So the other book is titled UEs or Not UEs, That is the Question. And it's that one's a, kind of a, a fic, fiction book. It's set five years in the future, and it kind of goes through this process of one lady's life, one day in her life. And in one scenario, she's a member of the United Earth Ecclesia, and the other scenario, she's not. And it shows the difference that her membership made in her in her one day. And so it's just introducing the concepts of, of how we can work together. And then the other book is the Earth, uh, Earth Citizen's Guide to Co-Creating the Greatest and Highest Good. And that one lays out the tools that we have available to try to to make this change, mindset change from comp- competition to cooperation. And uh, they're both available on our website. Uh, our website is exloxlo.org. Exlo is short for exclamation of love. Oh, okay. And we have a, um, we have a collective mark that uh, that is representative of that of that also. And when you say collective mark, what is that? Well, um, it's it's kind of like a, a trademark or a logo. Uh, oh, okay. But only a collective mark can only be displayed by members of the collective of, of the group. Um, like a good example I can give you is is the word uh, realtor. When you see a realtor, real estate agent uh, have a sign that says realtor, that mm-hmm. is a collective mark. Only a, a person belonging to that organization can display that realtor sign. Oh, and I they have to have that. a cer- certain amount of ethics to. And, and they have to abide by certain uh, uh, rules in order to have that that sign. Well, ours is a is a symbol. Ours is a symbol of a heart on top of a plus sign, and it it's called an exclamation of love mark. It's registered with the U.S. Patent Office, and and only uh, people that are members of the organization can display it. And we use it for two purposes. One is if I'm walking down the street and I see that you have a water bottle that has an exclamation of love mark on it, I'll I'll know that you're a member of the organization and and we have something in common right away. And so we can, uh, you know, it's just a friend you haven't met yet. The other other purpose is if somebody sees that exclamation of love mark and they go, well, what is that? It gives a perfect opportunity to introduce the concepts of the United Earth Ecclesia and and how they can become a member and the benefits uh, involved in that. So um, I put a lot of time and work into this organization, and uh, like I said, we're just getting started. What we need is members uh, just to bolster our our numbers. Again, you can membership is free. You can just go to exlo.org and sign up when 
and uh, attest to the uh, Earth Citizen Covenant. There's also okay. benefits to it. Uh, right now we're in the founding members period, so everybody that joins right now is a founding member, and they get some special lifetime benefits. They get a free listing in our business directory. Like I said, if, if you had a choice to do business with somebody that hadn't attested to the Earth Citizen Covenant or had, who would you choose? So it'll give a chance to for you to promote your business to like-minded members. That's just one nice of the benefits. Idea. Well, you know, I I, I may be joining up. <laughs> um, uh, most of the talk show hosts that I've that of their programs I've been on have signed up as members. So. Well, you know, we have we we you know are we are very much uh, like minded, you know, and uh, that's why I in, invited you here on the show uh, because you know I like to you know a lot of the things that we're talking about we also sort of put them under the category of uh, liberation theology, but theology yeah. with an A, you know, sure. and uh, I, I like to always show how big that umbrella is, you know. I mean, I, I had an anthology that came out last year. And I actually had people in it like Noam Chomsky, you know, because he's wow. all about the the common good. Sure. Um, and and it and it's amazing to people. I mean, that that has been one of the main comments that's come back about the anthology. They would never have thought this diverse group of people had so much in common. Uh, right. But we but we really do. You know, we just don't know it because we're all in our own little bubbles. And, right. Um, right. Yeah. So um, you mentioned in one of your books uh, something called Lenergy. What's Lenergy? Well, Lenergy is, a, is something I wrote my master's thesis on, in, in fact. Um, I was, uh, at the time when I was in graduate school, my, my big question was how to reconcile science and religion. I was raised in a very small town. We had two churches. We had a Methodist church and a Mennonite church. And uh, my my dad was a Methodist, so I became a Methodist. And so, but the theology was very, very narrow and very compartmentalized. And so, uh, one of the reasons I went to theology school at the Iliff School of Theology was to just to broaden my horizons and try to reconcile this big dilemma I had between science and religion. And I looked at science and I said, well, if you look at Einstein, you know, E equals MC squared, everything's energy. You know, if you boil it down, everything's energy. But then you look at religions and and every every religion has some type of concept about uh, love. And love, it seems to be the basic emotion of of every religion and every person. And so we have these two basics. We have energy and science, and we have love and religion. And so if you look at at creationism, so to speak, um, if, you're, if you're going to create something, first you have to have the idea, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of creation of the universe, for example, was in God's mind and and okay, I'm going to create a universe. But then he had to he had to use some kind of power to do that. And so I postulated the the concept of energy, which is the energy of love. And it's not just energy that's out there. I mean, that energy's all everywhere. There's dark energy. There's dark matter. There's all these other different things. But energy is really that 
it's a focused energy that is that is focused by an intellectual mind or a cognitive mind. It's so in order for you to make your creation come alive, you have to focus your energy into making those steps into making that dream come true. And so mm-hmm. that's that's what lenergy is. It's that focused energy of the intellectual mind that that is creating something. And it's it's a combination of energy and the love that that you're putting into that. Well, that that uh, I, I like that. You know, it, uh, it you know that that's got a good feel to it. Um, and you know, and I, I like that uh, that you're so creative, and um, you know, you just sort of uh, you know put it out there, and uh, you obviously um, you know you weren't worried about uh, you know what people think. You know, um, because, you know, some some people might think, uh, you know, these sorts of ideas that you and I value, um, that they're naive and cheesy, you know. Um, but I, I think that's maybe what's wrong with the world today. You know, I, I think in a way we've kind of gotten uh, maybe too big for our own britches, so to speak, and um, uh, and, and look where it's, where it's gotten us. Um, right. You know, I it, think it, we just need to get back to the basics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so, how many um, people are you looking to have in uh, in the organization, Dwayne? Well, the more the better. You know, the ideal would be seven billion, but <laughs> <laughs> and, that and way what are you truly be one? And and what are you doing uh, to try to get the word out there? What are your uh, methods of uh, communication? Well, um, I, I, this is probably about the. 15th or 16th radio show I've done so that's one of the major things that I'm doing because that's a, that's a way to reach a lot of people, a lot of different people and we have a Facebook page and uh, of course our website and uh, we're, we're really pushing word of mouth because uh, I've I funded all of this all on my own and I, I am not a rich man I, I work two different jobs and one of them is for a organization, a non-profit organization called uh, Learning Ally, which is formerly Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic. We record academic textbooks for for uh, people with print disabilities. And so I'm not a rich man, so I I put all this together out of my pocket. Um, we uh, we got some products that we can sell on the, on the website to uh, to help defray some of the costs. Um, they all have, but you can only be a member again to buy the products with the uh, exclamation of love mark on them. You can buy our books and there's also uh, on the website itself you can you can download free excerpts of the books whether in uh, a PDF format or we also have audiobook for, uh, formats uh, and you can get the books in PDF or, or ebook or a print book or audiobook. Um okay. so we're, we're got a lot of different things uh uh, I would imagine you're probably going to get around to having a Facebook page, and yeah, we have a Facebook page, and uh, um, I'm still learning. You know, I'm not a youngster, so I'm still learning uh, all the ins and outs uh, of of social media and and all the different it's, it's things com- that we have it's available. Complicated. Yeah, I yes, mean, you know, I'm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure if you're 20, if this all comes very easy. Right. But, um, 
you know, uh, I'm I'm still learning all the bells and whistles on Facebook myself. I mean, I I try to promote my books and things like that, and you know, do the most, uh, you know, hopefully I do the most optimal things that are free. Um, sure. Uh, but it's 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 tough. You know, it's tough to get the word out. But you know, I yeah. I look, but but it's the perfect time though. I think Dwayne, because you know, social media has uh, you know made it so that um, our ideas can be you know gotten out there exponentially. Um, you know, and and I would imagine. I mean, I'm just assuming this. You tell me if I'm wrong, but um, I would think that that uh, maybe. Um, uh, your group may start uh, more locally, you know, as you as you try to grow it beyond the local community. I mean, um, are you doing anything in, in in your local community yet under the auspices of uh, your organization? Uh, well, we've got definitely have some plans to do some things locally, but they're they're still in the planning stages. Um, I. I I'm surprised that I do. We do have members from uh, all over the United States and Canada and England. So, um, and in in a couple weeks, I'm going to have a radio interview with a lady in Jakarta, Indonesia. So we're we're getting the word out there. well, and, and I, my listeners, my listeners are global too. So uh, after this, you may, you know, you may get some people. Uh, and it, it, but I mean, they don't always listen to the shows in order. Sometimes they go to the oh, archives sure. first. But uh, sure. you may, uh, you know, uh, you, you may get some other international folks uh, as well from, uh, you know, f- hear from voices of the sacred feminine. And and I hope you do because uh, obviously, if they're listening to me, they're going to want to know about you. <laughs> Well, you know, the thing is, it, I would hope this really resonates with people who who have felt in the past that they didn't really have a voice, you know, mm-hmm. that they feel like they've been steamrolled by the corporations and the government and the, and all the other things, the, the economic barriers. And we just want to get people to give them a, a, a platform where they can have a voice. It's, it's pure world democracy. Um, one person, one vote, no lobbyists, no PACs, no uh, corporate money buying any votes. You know, it's just right, pure right. global democracy at its finest. And and that's you know, like your uh, like Mr. Sanders talks about. You know, he's a, he's a social democrat. He talks about a lot of the same stuff. And yeah. we just need to get all get on the same page and 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 put our efforts together and make the changes that we need to make. Yeah, because, you know, I think I find sometimes the people on the left, you know, they even they are busy fighting among each other rather right. than, you know, trying to come together. And, I mean, look, and right now I will admit, you know, I have, like, had it up to my eyeballs with some of these Hillary supporters. But in the end, I hope whoever the nominee is, you know, we will find a way to get behind them so that we don't, 
you know have a country go in an even worse direction uh right. but but it's but it's hard you know i mean you find i mean you and i were talking before the show i mean you're a green party and you know and i'm a bernie person and you know and i'm thinking you know if we could just figure out a way to consolidate our efforts you know then we would have so much more leverage you know if we would uh, you know if we would manage to get on the same page i mean like i'm thinking how the uh, people who uh, were given, you know, the black folks who were given Bernie Sanders a hard time in the beginning, as yeah. if he wasn't somebody who was trying to help them his entire life. You right. know, it's we 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 tend, I think, to go after the wrong people and waste yeah. our energy, you know, yeah. uh, rather than going after the people who are uh, who are the real uh, culprits, if you will. Yeah, um, yeah. We- well. Uh, no, go ahead. You you were going to say? Uh, I, uh, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, we, there's some great ideas out there, and we're all looking at the ideas just a little bit different. So we need to get all on the same page and, and, and hammer out at the main idea in language that everybody can agree with and then move forward from that direction. Like, for you know, for me, it's just abominable that 60% of the bankruptcies in in the United States come from people who have uh health care debt. That to yeah. me is just unconscionable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many things that are hard to believe. I mean, the people who've lost their pensions, the fact that none of the Wall Street uh, people have gone to jail after yeah. the Wall Street debacle. I mean, in Michael Moore's movie, they t- he takes you to Iceland, and in Iceland, they have actually prosecuted. They jailed him. Yeah. The- Yes, yes, you know, and but you know we you know here it's like they're untouchable, and I think right. that's why um, you know the the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and all the institutions um, they have no credibility with anybody anymore. You know, they have right. all lost their way, and so um, it, it's kind of a free for all. <laughs> well, I, I really love that one statistic that Bernie talks about, where the fifteen. Richest Americans made more money than the than the bottom hundred million. Yeah, yeah, it's That's incredible. It's crazy. Yeah, and and you know, and some people just don't even know it. And the people who vote against their economic interest, um, you know, the women who uh, who are complicit in their own oppression. I mean, there's so much to be done on the educational front. But you know, I almost think, Dwayne, here I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I almost feel like it's intentional. You know, they have dumbed down the American people so much. I mean, we don't even teach civics in school or anything like that anymore. They have dumbed. Yeah. American people down so badly that um, they're just they don't sheeple. Even, yes. Oh. Oh. Yes. Indeed. That's one of my words. Sheeple. Yeah. Yes. Sheeple. For sure. For sure. Well. Well, Dwayne. Um, please tell listeners again your website, the titles of your books, where they can get your stuff. Um, this is your sort of last pitch to let everybody know what you want okay. them to know. Yeah. Well, it's real simple. Just go to exlo.org. Exlo.org. And you can sign up uh, for the to become a member, and uh, I I put out a, a, a membership, uh, not really a newsletter, just an update every week to all the members. And uh, you can buy our products on there. You can buy our books. You can get if you're not sure you want to buy the books, you can get free excerpts of 
of the books in either PDF or uh, uh, audio book format. Um, and we just need mem- members. We need people that want to make a better world for their for their progeny, for their children, their grandchildren. Um, you know, a lot of people in the world have come to the point where their children are not going to be as good off as they are. But we need to change that. We need to we need to come together. We need to take responsibility for the world that it the way it is now, and take the responsibility and the action to to make it better in the future. Absolutely, I am with you 100%, and I encourage my listeners to get in touch with you and join, uh, as I will do in the next few days uh, after the show here. So, Dwayne, thank you so much for the selfless work uh, you're doing out there, Um, you know, because it's going to take us all, you know, we all got to do a little bit, you know, we all, uh, you know, have our part to play, and, uh, you know, I'm glad to know you're on the planet uh, doing what you can do from your end to the world. Well, thank you for giving me a forum to to help get the word out that there there is a way that we can make things better. Okay. Well, uh, I I believe we can. You know, I really do believe we can. We certainly can't give up. So, no. um it, yeah, I mean that's that that would be the worst thing in the world. I mean, we would we would we would certainly become a slave class, you know, if uh <laughs> yeah. and 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 so many of us are already, you know. Yeah. So many of us are already. We just uh, you know, we don't even know it. So, um well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dwayne, and uh I will uh, certainly be in touch and not Yeah, too and long. be sure you send me that information. Oh yeah, about uh, Rianne Eisler. I most definitely right. will because you know what you you guys are going to be like bookends. Um, Good. You know that it would be a great uh, uh, great collaboration there for Always you to know about to each other. Always a treat to a like-minded soul. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you, Dwayne. Thank and you. And good night. Thank you. All right, good bye-bye. night. Well, uh, we are crossing the threshold uh, into the second part of the show, and I believe I see uh, my next guest, uh, Tim Ward, is there on the switchboard, and I'm going to get to him in just a second uh, after I uh, take care of a little bit of business here that uh, I have to do, uh, a little bit of housekeeping, as we call it. Um, You know, uh, there's something kind of new uh, I want to tell you about, and you may have heard about it already, but I think it bears repeating. You know, for some time on the show, I have described the film uh, Dancing with Gaia by uh, Joe Carson. Uh, Joe has uh, uh, also written a book now uh, besides her film, and the book is called uh, Celebrate Wildness, uh, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path, and it's come out in a new expanded second edition. Uh, Feriferia uh, calls itself a love culture for, uh, for wilderness, and uh, it connects you to the fairy spirits of the land and the stars and aims to sort of create a, a, a paradise or a sanctuary all over the earth. It, it's uh, rooted in ancient Crete, if uh, that's... Uh, you know, kind of the lore you're, uh, you know, that speaks to you, and also the Eleusian mysteries. If you're into the Demeter, Persephone, Corey, um, uh mythologies, uh, or the troubadour practices and the megalithic traditions, it all sort of um, is interconnected there with Feriferia. Uh It also celebrates the goddess uh, as the Merry Maiden. Uh, called Kore, which is uh, a version of Persephone, if I uh, my memory serves correctly. Uh, 
actually carry the keys to the future. Well, here's a quote uh, from Jason Mankey about the book, uh, Celebrate Wildness. Uh, Jason has been involved uh, with uh, paganism for a couple decades, and he spent half of that uh, half of that time as a speaker and a writer and uh, a high priest. Uh, uh, here was his quote about uh, the new book. He said, I begin a wildness reluctantly, but within about 15 minutes I was all in and found myself absolutely entranced by its pages. Uh, some of that is no doubt due to the beautiful artwork of Fred Adams that just about leaps off the page. Why aren't all of the images in this book available as fine quality prints to hang around my ritual space, is what he said. Uh, but the book is more than art. It's wonderfully written. Uh, serves as a comprehensive how-to on feriferia. There's a lot of great history in the book, uh, but it's the doing and the philosophies uh, that really grabbed uh, Jason. He said, I was worried I'd find Feriferia remote and hard to understand or dated, uh, but he was happy to be completely wrong, and he found much of his belief uh, within the pages of wildness uh, that he plans to incorporate in some of his own um, uh, ritual practice and spiritual work. Uh, Fred Adams and Svetlana's vision, uh, they were the... uh, you know, very instrumental in Feriferia. Um, their vision from 50 years ago is just as urgent and beautiful today as it was back then, according to Jason. And the Feriferian vision, as it relates to the Wheel of the Year, is one uh, most um, pagans or eco-feminists, you know, people connected to the earth would really benefit from. So celebrate uh, wildness. It's a hardcover art book printed on heavy paper uh, with images of goddess, symbols, diagrams, and and uh, would make a fabulous gift. I think it would make a great coffee table book. Um, I've seen it. it. It really is a nice book. And it's available from the Farah Feria website. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org dot org. And uh, one other uh, thing I want to tout tonight before I get to Tim quickly uh, is Sage Woman magazine. Uh, Sage Woman uh, celebrates the goddess and every woman, and it's been doing so for 30 years. Uh, Sage Woman magazine brings the wisdom of women's spirituality to over 10,000 women every 88-page issue. And you know what? Uh, it isn't often we get something for nothing, but you are going to get a freebie here. Uh, all you have to do is contact Sage Woman and tell them you uh, heard me talk about it on the show here. Uh, their toll-free number is 888-724-3966. Uh, mention this ad for a free sample, and um, they'll send it to you. It's that easy. It is that easy. Uh, you can also go to their website uh, for Sage Woman, and it's the name of the magazine, which is sagewoman.com. Okay, well, I am going to unmute Tim here and uh, introduce uh, you to him uh, by way of his bio. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, you know, Tim is uh, not a stranger to the show, and uh, he's been a good friend of mine for a while, and him and his wife partnered to write the Master Communicator's Handbook, which uh, he believes, um, uh, you know, communication can create transformation, and we're going to talk more about that tonight. Uh, but Tim, uh, he's actually the author of eight books, and uh, as I said, he co-partnered the Master's Communicator's Handbook uh, with uh, his uh, wife and business partner, Teresa Erickson, um, 
They also co-own uh, Intermedia Communications Training. It's a company that teaches transformational communication to international development uh, and environmental organizations such as the World Bank and the World Wildlife Fund, and uh, they reside together happily in Bethesda, Maryland. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. I'm so happy to be back. But it feels like walking into the uh, uh, the living room of uh, of, a, of a of a dear friend that I'm visiting once again, coming back into your show in this virtual space that I've shared so so many times with you. And I just want to take take my usual seat in this uh, virtual couch um, right right next to you and to Dwayne. Well, uh, welcome. Oh, well, I'm so glad, and don't forget to, you know, uh, have your cup of tea in your hands and uh, yes. and enjoy it as as we sit here and and chat uh, chat with each other once again. I'm glad we were able to get our our schedules to uh, uh, to work together and uh, get you on the show because uh, I know you're so busy and you're doing important stuff. Uh, and I didn't even mention uh, the work that you do as uh, the publisher of Changemakers Books uh, with John Hunt Publishing that keeps you busy too it it does indeed and for any of your if there are any of your readers out there who don't know um, i've got the real privilege of being your publisher too karen and um, three of your four books have uh, proudly got the change makers publishers uh, backing backing them so um, oh good just, uh, well uh, yeah, and you know, I, I I love the I love the 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 title, Change Makers, because you know that is uh, that that's uh, that's the what we live and breathe for. You know, I mean that's uh, that that's what we're here to do. We're not here to uh, uh, become mega millionaires. We're here to make the world a better place. And uh, uh, and if we can do both in the in the same time, we'll just become philanthropists. <laughs> exactly. If we're going to make change, there's no sense making small change. Might as well make big change. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so Tim, you've you've been here on the show before, and uh, you know we've talked about your other books, and uh, they're usually personal and spiritual. They've been about goddess Buddhism, uh, you know, the trip you took with your son up to the Himalayas, you know, sort of a father son bonding book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this this new book, the Master's Communicators, uh, the Master Communicators Handbook, it's it's different. Um, do you usually write this sort? of stuff, or is this your first stab at it? This is my my first stab at publishing in in book length. The the work that I do professionally, like like so many of us, you know, we have a we have a calling and a spiritual drive and direction in life, and and we also tend to have something that pays the bills. And for for much of my life, the um, work that I've been doing teaching communications, especially to development professionals and environmentalists, that is what you know, pays the pays the bills and makes everything else possible. And the and I've now been doing that and fortunately been doing it together with my uh, my my wife and business partner Teresa who like myself is a former journalist. Um we've been doing that for so many years we've actually learned enough stuff that we can put it together into a book. And so although my writing has been, you know, much more sort of questing after meaning, this is just a practical guidebook. And we call it the communicator's handbook because it, it really is meant just to be practical advice for anybody who's trying to communicate about their passion, about their ideas, about the ways that they want to change the world. And so for me, it's actually been a bringing together of the of the two worlds because, um, you know, I really do believe whatever your whatever your spiritual path and direction is, whatever the change you're working to make in the world, um, 
communicating well is an essential piece of it. So it's kind of mm-hmm. put together these two right. halves of my of my identity, and and that's been really delightful. Uh, not to mention both delightful and challenging to write the book with Teresa. <laughs> well, it's almost in a way like putting your left and right brain together in a sense. Would you say? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And indeed, yeah. that's one of the things that we teach in many of our communications courses is we, we try to get people away from a sort of too cognitive approach where they're they're trying to explain complicated ideas one little piece at a time, but people never really get the big picture. So how do you use all of our marvelous abilities as 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 creatures with an imagination and and with intuitive layers of intelligence, how can you use that when you communicate so that you um, aren't communicating, even if you're an economist or a scientist, you're not communicating in a way that's dry and lifeless, but you're really Mm -hmm. breathing life into your words and really breathing spirit into your words, breathing your passion into your words. And and that shakes up some of the people that we... uh, that that we work with, but you know, it's sort of bread and bread and butter for the spiritual communities that I spent so much of the other half of my life working with. Right. Well, you know, I, I mean, because yeah, I mean, it's really in how you say it, you know, how you communicate it. Because I mean, I think one of my strengths, or at least I think I realized it might have been a strength because I've had enough people say it to me, is a lot of the stuff I'll go out and talk to people about, I say it in such a way as the average person can get it and maybe even say it in a funny way and maybe they can relate to it. You know, it's it's kind of just, you know, uh, talking on every person's level where an academic could come in and maybe be talking about the same thing, but people's eyes would glaze over, you know, uh, because it's, it's, it's all in the delivery so to speak. It's all in how you communicate it. So it's no wonder um, transform- communication is so important to transformation because unless you can hit on the right communication, I mean, I don't mean to steal your thunder here, but I'm sort of segueing into, um, you know, unless you can communicate in a uh, in, in different ways to different audiences and um, and and get your point across so that people understand it, because I know some wonderful people whose ideas are so lofty that they can never just say it simple enough that people understand what they even mean. Um, how will you ever transform the world if you get, can't get people to understand? what you're saying absolutely and 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 maybe i rambled on too much there (laughs) no (laughs) i i I work with that every day and i I see also as the author the publisher of changemakers i see that in many of the books that come across my way people dump out too many words especially words that have complex or esoteric meanings and you pile all those words on and you think that's convincing people. So one of the, the key principles of the Master Communicator's Handbook is that communication is not about output. It's not about what you say. It's about impact. It's about how your words land in the mind of your audience and what change do your words actually create inside their their heads, inside their, their being. And um, most people don't even think about that. They think, yeah. I said it. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes you think about books you've read, you know. Um, if I have to read a sentence five times and maybe I get what they said, uh, I'm not going to try too hard 
probably to finish the rest of the book. So you've lost me. <laughs> yeah, ab- um, and oh, or, or just, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, look, I've read a lot of goddess authors. And, um, I mean, you know, we all have different styles, you know, and one person's trash is another person's treasure. It's just, um, you know, different styles of communication and, and different ways to get uh, uh, get the point across. So, so in your book, do you sort of address these different styles? Is that uh, one of the things you do? Yes, absolutely. And um, we also sort of look for the, um, you know, what's the the easiest path to tread to? I mean, you can be like a really gifted writer, like a William Faulkner, who writes in these long, convoluted sentences, like, you know, a, a, a like a southern swamp. They all sort of flow mm-hmm. together somehow. And if you're really talented, you can do that. But most people, when they try to write long sentences, as you said, it ends up just becoming gobbledygook in the listener's ears. So the easy thing is to write in short sentences. Why? Because it's much easier for the mind to grasp a short sentence than a long sentence. And there's a very easy way of explaining this. When we listen to a sentence, there's actually a part of our brain that turns on and sends us endorphins, sends us pleasure chemicals when we make sense of the sentence. To make sense of the sentence, we have to hear all the words in the sentence. When we get to the end, you get that little aha. But if there's Mm -hmm. too many words in the sentence, (laughs) it gets harder and harder to hold them all in your mind to make sense when the person reaches the end. So you can think of a sentence really as being about juggling balls. You know, a a good jugger can juggle four or five, maybe six balls, but you throw 20, 30 balls at somebody, they're all (laughs) going to drop. And then you never get that little aha at the end of the sentence. Yeah. So yeah, by the time you so get somebody, to the end of the sentence, exactly. you forgot the first few words of the sentence. Exactly. So writing or speaking with never-ending sentences deprives your audience of that regular little hit of, aha, and then they move along. So simply learning to speak or write in shorter sentences greatly increases not only the clarity and comprehension of you as a speaker or a writer, but your audience's pleasure. Right. Well, and Tim, I wonder with you know some with I, I, I'm assuming I, I'm, I'm making this blanket statement and uh, uh, and it's not like I have any statistics to back it up. It's kind of anecdotal uh, belief, uh, you know, belief based on you know anecdotal information. Um, you know, I don't think people read so much anymore. So I would almost think that you have to uh, be a little. I hate to say it, but you almost have to dumb it down a little bit, and even maybe the shorter sentences would encourage people, because I think most of us have ADD now. You know, uh, we we don't even write out words when we text, and everything's got to be quick. Uh, you know, your YouTube video better not be more than two minutes or people aren't going to watch it. Um, I, does Is that part of this, too, keeping it short and sweet? Well, um, let me give an awkward yes and a no to that to that answer. Uh, on the one hand, I absolutely agree. The culture is speeding up. If you take a look at a book that was written like 100 years ago, say something by Thomas Hardy, it's very, very long. The descriptive passages alone go on for pages and pages. And yes, there's a certain pleasure in that, but I think it's something that is becoming harder and harder for us to access because we've got the visuals, right? We've got movies now. We've got pictures we don't necessarily need to exercise those muscles in the same way. The good part of that for me is in a fast-moving culture, 
we are being trained to get to the point more quickly. I don't think that's mm-hmm. always a bad thing. Certainly, uh, one of the organizations we work with is a very large development organization, and they're used to writing 200-page reports on weighty issues about poverty, about access to water, about health, about gender. So for decades, they've been writing these 200-page reports, but they're finally getting it. Nobody's reading them. Maybe nobody ever was, but today they're really seeing this is becoming irrelevant. So we've seen some people working on, well, how can we turn this into an app so that we can Mm -hmm. just get to the point? Rather than do a long report, shouldn't we put out a series of short YouTube videos? So they're changing their thinking because the culture is driving us towards being short, getting to the point. And, And indeed, if you've got a language that's complex and detailed, you're actually cutting out people who don't share your education base. So, you know, if you've written something that only PhDs can understand, in a sense that's that's elitist and it cuts most people, especially in development, it cuts most of the people who are poor and not well-educated out of the conversation. There's a real cost to the ornateness and... um, exquisiteness even, I could say, of language, the cost is it cuts a lot of people out. I mean, one of the huge achievements in the world today is we are getting close to global literacy. But that Mm -hmm. literacy means there's a certain level, which is a common level. And I believe that we should all be able to shoot for that common level, however complex and esoteric me may still want to be. In some discussions, we need to be able to shoot for the common level so that everybody's part of the discussion. Right, right, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're making me think about the old uh, Anne Rice novels, you know, and she would go mm-hmm. on and on and on about the architecture or something or other, and I would just feel like, oh, please get on with it. When is something yeah. going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just uh, I just don't have the patience for that, or you'll be on the computer and somebody will send you something, and usually it's an ad. And, you know, the thing, the thing that they do now when they want to sell you something is they have these little uh, audio things that you have to listen to and they go on and on and on and on and I just hate redundancy you know I just right. uh, I, I, it's like I got a million things to do get to the point please yeah. <laughs> um, so um, Karen, so, let, me, let me give now, you an example of, of something that I had the pleasure to be involved in not that long ago which, which really brought me deep into this realm um, I, uh, as its publisher of Changemakers, I came across a manuscript called Journey to Inner Power, which was written by Shai Tubali, um, a brilliant, brilliant man. And it was his deep look at how power affects our psychology. This book was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever written in terms of its ideas, but it was written at a like a PhD level of psychology. And I agreed to publish it with Shai, but I said, I will only do this on one condition. You have to promise me you'll write... 150-page version for junior, for for, you know, first-year college students. And he said, "Well, I'll only do that if you write it with me." So we actually got together and collaborated, turning this huge book into a very slim, very accessible book that, to me, had at its school to really get all the levels of profundity and insight of the big book into the little, easy-to-get book. Huge challenge, but. I think that's where people should be spending more of their effort to get these complicated, beautiful ideas and make them really simple, make them really accessible. Indestructible You, that's the book, by the way. And uh, I, 
Uh, I love being a part of this. Uh, I wish that physicists and economists and politicians would take the same effort to be clear and elegant instead of complex and verbose. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, well, I hate to say it, uh, of course, you know, they spend all of this time to get an education. They're probably smarter than most folks out there. But I think a lot of that's about ego. Um, you know, I mean, I can't tell you the times I've sat in the room and, and listened to a, a scholar deliver a paper, and, you know, it just felt like, you know, they were full of themselves, sort of just engrossed in their words, but they had lost the whole room, you know, and, uh, you know, didn't even realize it. But um, anyway, you know, it, it you know, just, just a thought, you know. Um, you know, you have to think about your audience, and that's uh, one of the main things when you're presenting something. Yes, absolutely. And and um, I've not only seen that many times myself, but there's a, a related thing, too, which you often find in, in what's called the New Age movement, which I would call fuzzy thinking. It's, it's people who, um, you know, have an idea, but they can't really express it well, so they just sort of throw out a lot of the jargon um, uh, of the spiritual world and, uh, you, you know, sort of dress it up with divinities and that can turn fuzzy, fuzzy thinking into a into a talk or even into a book, and I've seen my share of those too. So uh, I think it's not just academics and intellectuals. It's also people in the in the spiritual community who sometimes are actually poor communicators because they haven't really thought things through and, and, and so their work lacks yeah. clarity. For me, that's yeah. the real the real gold standard clarity. Yeah, well, and 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 that's not to say there aren't some things that it's hard to find language for, you know. But you're talking about something different. Yes, but I'm 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 really glad you brought that up because there are things that are are hard to find language for, and there are things that are actually new, new experiences, new ideas that you have to struggle to put into words, it's almost like giving birth, you know. Giving birth to an idea means taking something from deep inside your being or deep inside your body and and bringing it out in sounds or or characters in such a way that someone else, when they read them or hear them, can kind of get it too. That, that to me, is the magic of, of language. Yeah. Well, and let's not forget, I mean, we're talking about, I assume, uh, you know, people who speak the same language and are of the same culture. Um, It just gets uh, doubly uh, complicated to communicate and therefore have transformation if you're talking to someone uh, who, uh, you know, has no cultural reference for what you're even talking about or spiritual reference or uh, language. I, I mean, Mm-hmm. Uh, communication could e- can either save or destroy the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 really true. It either um, opens people up to things that are that are new and and creative and makes them feel more alive inside of themselves, or you know, like sort of a, like oppressive societies, it can give you a very narrow path to walk where language is not allowed to the left or to the right of the of the path. You think of the worst places, um, you know, Nazi German or Nazi Germany or Stalin's uh Stalin's Soviet um Soviet Russia where um to say things, you know, speech. Yeah, a because lot of speech the, the was words, not allowed. 
yeah, because the words would suggest ideas that are maybe taboo, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, we, uh, and uh, it, with my first guest tonight, it's it's interesting that uh, it, you know, this happens all the time though here on the show without me actually planning it. The, a lot, lots of times, the guests overlap, and you know, we're talking about uh, you know communication and transformation and collaboration. And um, you've written this book with Teresa, your wife. Um, you guys have been married how long now? Fifteen years. Fifteen years, okay. Yeah, and yeah. you know Second how was this your, your, and 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 how was it to work together to uh, to collaborate on a book? Was it was it a, a challenge or a breeze or something in between? It was uh, it it was delightful and challenging. And the uh, delightful part is just you know sharing uh, something as complex as writing a book with somebody that you really love and somebody who's also a master at it. Teresa was a, um, a a radio producer and host for many, many years and very, very talented with scripts. And her real strength is in simplifying things. Me, I'm a former print journalist. I've written all these books and I can go long quite easily. So, um, Teresa was really good at taking the editorial pen and slashing through whole paragraphs that I would <laughs> that I would write. <laughs> and as an editor, she had no qualms about just plain throwing out somebody else's work. Uh, and, and, and so we arrived painful. at a painful. Well, painful for me, not so much for her. Uh, when she was on the giving yeah. end of it, when she was on the receiving end of it, when I would change her sentences or suggest that a paragraph was redundant, oh my God, you'd swear I was, uh, you know. <laughs> Well, our, our words are our, our children, you know. I mean, we yeah, burst yeah. these things. <laughs> yes, but now, now you're now you're recalling that great uh, poem of, uh, of of good editing, which is "Murder Your Darlings." <laughs> <laughs> when you really think you've written a beautiful sentence, cross it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to so throw we were, in the trash. We were, it was poetry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we ended up murdering each other's darlings, which is really even worse. It's hard enough to cut out a sentence yourself, but to have somebody else cut it out is always, always hard. Um, but so here, here's what we did: um, we would each we divided the book up into her chapters and my chapters, that were the topics that we each knew the best. We'd each write a draft, and then we would give it to each other to edit. That's where the fun began. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd edit the chapters and then we'd send them back to each other and we would just be howling at each other. How could you cut this? Oh my God, you you don't understand what I do. You not understand this topic at all. So we'd go back and forth like that. Um, and, <laughs> and then have and, a glass of wine and kiss and make that's up. That's <laughs> right. Then have a glass of wine and uh, and and then grudgingly come back to each other and say, you're right, it's better the way you edited it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see why that wasn't so clear after all. <laughs> well, you know, I can't see Roy and I ever writing a book together, but uh, we, you know, when we do collaborate on things, we have such a different way of reaching the same endpoint. Um, mm-hmm. It's a struggle, you know. It's it's a struggle because we we you know we have different approaches, but. Um, yeah, so so it's that challenge of uh, sort of marrying. Uh, it's it's the challenge of collaboration. You know, is is what it is. Yeah. I mean, it just reminds us how how tough it is if it's that hard with our loved ones. Imagine how hard it is, you know, to reach some sort of consensus with 
the enemy. (laughs) Um, You know, but uh, okay, so now you teach communication courses uh, for women. Uh, Tell me about that. And um, uh, I I didn't realize you did that. Yes. Uh, Several years ago, um, when, when we were teaching courses that were not particularly for women, but we would teach courses on being interviewed by the media or on, on good uh, talks and presentations and speeches. But women at the organizations we worked with would come up to us, or, or in the course they'd raise their hand and they'd say, you know, I've got a real problem. Um, you know, in meetings, people interrupt me all the time. I see they don't interrupt the men, but they interrupt me. Or, uh, you know, I'll put an idea forward and somebody else will pick up the idea. Next thing we know, everybody's talking about this idea that it's Bob's idea, or we say, I'm, I've got, you know, I'm trying to do a, I've got a job interview coming up, and I've been passed over three times, and I don't know why. Can you help me figure this out? And we started seeing patterns. These are big international organizations. We started seeing patterns of unconscious gender bias that were really hurting women. And we brought this up to some some of our uh, more sophisticated clients, and they said, Yeah, we're coming to terms with this ourselves. Do you think you can do anything to really help? We said, well, yeah, we could train the men, but they probably won't show up for this. <laughs> so as a, as a first step, we can see if we can help women develop the tools that they can use to be more effective communicators to cut through the implicit gender bias where it exists and and to also just recognize what patterns might they be doing as women that are actually disempowering themselves in these high-powered organizations. Now, I can give you an example of that. It's a very common thing for women in group settings to put forward their idea in a way that makes space for others' ideas. So a woman might more readily say than a man, um, so I want to put this idea out there, but I realize there may be other ways of looking at it. So it's just my idea, and I'd love any feedback that you may have to improve this. What do you think? Where the man is more likely to say, I've got a brilliant idea, here it is, you'll love it. Uh-huh. But, but of course, there are individuals who are different, but as a general tendency, women are much more sensitive to what others may think of their ideas and how they mm-hmm. can make a space that's not that's a collaborative space instead of an authoritative take-charge space. Right, and, right. And those skills are great for collaborative groups, for where cooperation is highly valued, where you want honest and genuine feedback, and when you need a whole group to create something. Yeah. But a lot of times in the, in the business and development world, what's actually needed is an idea being put out clearly with ownership. And yeah. women find that a struggle sometimes to just say, this is my idea based on my research, these are my results, and I'll be glad to hear your questions. You know, you're reminding me of, I think it was an MIT study that uh, came out, oh, I don't know, within the last year. It said that um, um, corporations or boards that uh, had women on it were more likely to actually be more successful for some of the very reasons you're talking about, because they tend to uh, draw other people out and, um, uh, you know, better ideas get discussed and more options get put on the table, which I think just one of the things uh, they talked about. But, you know, you're also reminding me, I, I belong to a wisdom circle group, and it's men and women, and it's really interesting. 
interesting that, um, it, you know, it's all, at least in our wisdom circle, it's almost not even gender-oriented. You know, you find that people, the people who are more confident um, and who are used to maybe speaking up and to, I mean, this may just, this may just be common sense, but it's the more timid people who maybe are unsure themselves. They have trouble jumping into the conversation. You know, they tend to hang back, and uh, I don't know, maybe it's they think that um, their ideas aren't as good or whatever, but it, it, but it's frustrating because as a facilitator of a circle, you want to try to get everybody to have a voice and um, sometimes it's like pulling teeth, you know, to get somebody to share. Yes, yes, and and, and I would add to to that, Karen. It's a, it's I think it's quite true your observation that sometimes those who don't quickly put their ideas in aren't necessarily shy. They may be more on the introverted scale. And they they may also just genuinely be more aware of the possible flaws of their ideas mm-hmm. or the possible other possibilities and so be reluctant to make it seem as if they're imposing their ideas on others. In other words, it's not necessarily a shyness. It might be sort of a, a real intellectual honesty um, about not wanting to to make it seem like their ideas all that great. It might be, right. frankly, better than anybody else's idea. But some people are actually really good evaluators and hard evaluators of their own ideas. Interesting research has been actually done on two different kinds of people. It's been discovered that people who are real, genuine experts, they tend to undervalue the degree of their knowledge. So it's a real expert. If you said, scale of 1 to 10, how much do you know? They might say, Mm 7. People who don't know so much tend to have a bias of overconfidence. So somebody who doesn't know so much, then being asked on the same topic, well, scale of 1 to 10, how much do you think you know? They might say, 9. <laughs> they or 12. Are blind to their own ignorance, whereas the true experts tend to see their own ig- ig- ignorance better. Yes. I won't name any specific presidents here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking of but, actually some potential presidents. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we, exactly. But we can see that the, the, the problem when people think uh, with this confidence bias that often comes out of, out of ignorance. So when it comes to communicating, how can you help the communicators who may actually have the best ideas to be able to put their ideas forward in such a way that they're going to get some oxygen when the room may be full of somebody else saying, I oh, you know what we're going to do. This is going to solve all our problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, a facilitator's whole, uh, job is not that easy, you know, when you think about it. You know, it's uh, – uh, it, it, but the good facilitator, I think, um, you know, really maybe draws the best out of everybody, you know, when they're on their game. Yes. So – so, so Tim, you know, you uh, you have, you know, Goddess has influenced uh, your work. Has has that been helping? You know, that background, uh, you know, been helping you in your work with women. Yeah, I can say quite honestly that if not for the um, several years that I spent researching the Goddess and the prehistory of our own European culture, uh, I, I wouldn't be standing in this space today. And. Um, you know, with this this lovely book that I wrote, Savage Breast, One Man's Search for the Goddess, was about me really trying to get to the root of my own 
misogyny, my own difficulties in relationships with women. And so I really went back, not only did a lot of reading, but went to the sites where the goddess was worshipped in the past and got in touch with my own feelings, only to discover that some of them were really quite negative towards the idea of the sacred feminine and towards women. This is a completely unconscious subterranean realm of my life, Karen. And until that could be brought into the surface, I, I was totally blind to any of these issues. You know, I had as much male privilege as, 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 as unconscious male privilege as any other man you could point to, maybe even Donald Trump. You know, it was masked <laughs> behind a nice guy, a nice guy, uh, Patina, but it was there. And it was a hard, long slog to become conscious to the truths about my culture, the truths about my psychology, about growing up in a patriarchal culture and growing up as a man conditioned to be the superior sex, right? And just to mm-hmm. take that as as my due and to really surrender that, to really see it as a false god, literally, that had to die in me was a mm-hmm. long, hard journey. And 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 so the, the opportunity in the in the training room together with Teresa to uh, work with women and teach women how they can speak with power in their words how they can speak in such a skillful way that men will hear them when they can speak when they have a chance to speak with authority to simply be the man in the room and hear their stories and say I hear you it's so I hear what you say and it's real that's been great for me personally and I know for many of the women that we've we've worked with to have me as a man really get it I'm not saying that I'm mm-hmm. unique at it but I really get it and when I work mm-hmm. with women with Teresa in these courses they get it too that I get it and that gives them some hope because often their organizations surrounded by men who really don't get it and really don't yeah. love it and, well, so what a sort of advice do you and Teresa give these women, um, you know, to help them communicate, um, you know, more yes. professionally yes. and to be heard? Yes. You know, there's lots of bits and pieces. I could go some, over some of those in terms of tone of voice, in terms of posture, in terms of um, how to uh, how to stand, how to look. Uh, but those are superficial things. The, the, the nut of it is if a woman acts too much like a man in our culture, then it can tend to backfire and she will be perceived as a bitch, as she's trying to be all that, as who is she to put herself up because of all these layers of misogyny coming from both men and men and women. Frankly, I see a lot of this with Hillary Clinton. I know that's another whole conversation we could have, but I see a lot of people <laughs> disliking Hillary because in many ways she's taken on the persona that's a very male-like strong, ambitious persona. Mm-hmm. Very, very difficult for a lot of people, both both men and women. So what, what we tell to women in our courses is the band for you is narrower. You can't be like a woman amongst women because that in our culture will often make you seem submissive, accommodating, and hence weak. But you can't be a man either because then people will sort of push you into the, into the bitch zone. So right. in between, it's a narrower band than there is for a man. You know, a man, if he's too aggressive, yeah, he'll be perceived as, if I can say this on your show, he'll be perceived as an asshole. And if he's too mm-hmm. accommodating, he'll be perceived as a wimp. But the band in mm-hmm. between is wider for men than it is for women. 
And so, and if I can interject, you know, it's okay for him to be an asshole. You know, it 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 yeah. it's I I think it's more uh you know, he's maybe even seen as a good boss because he's got control of his troops, you know, or something like yeah. that. Yes. Well, let's look at Donald Trump since, since you know, yeah. we're talking candidates, right? A lot of people see his brashness, his boorishness, and they say, I like that. I like yeah. a man who's in charge, who can say, you're fired, you know, who can mm-hmm. say, you know, you're an idiot, you know, in a political debate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so he gets the space. Oh, my gosh, any female candidate who came anything close to those behaviors... You know, she'd be practically ushered off the stage. But yeah, they would think she back. was hysterical. Right. They, I mean, well, we really, have, they we, would call her hysterical. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, we did kind of have that with Sarah Palin eight years ago. <laughs> and, and she was, you know, very much turned into a into a, a buffoon, by, by except for those who were really her rabid, rabid supporters. So it's a, um, it's a narrower it's a fine band, line, it's a harder women walk. walk. And yeah, yeah, women you know, have a tougher. Yeah, and the amazing thing, you know, there's lots of books being written by, like, Cheryl, Cheryl Shandon's Lean In. You know, there's a lot of women who are saying, you know what, it's worth it, because if I walk this walk, I'm going to make the path bigger, right? Right now it's a small little dirt path. If enough women walk this walk, it'll become a broad trail, and eventually we can pave it over, and it'll be a level playing field. Well, hopefully, you know, because, you know, women do have this, um, you know, unfortunately have this competitive edge and, you know, it's that lobster pot analogy. You know, we would like to think if all the women are boiling in the in the, in the the water and one manages to get themselves out that the others wouldn't pull her back in. Instead, they would push uh, her up so she can turn around and help pull them out. But um, right. unfortunately, you know, you find uh, competition among women and I wish it, uh, wish it weren't like like that, you know. I wish more women helped uh, helped each other, and uh, um, but you know we have to we have to work on that because we don't have a lot of role models. I mean, let's uh, you know we should have to face that, you know. But um, that's that's part of what we have to uh, uh, you know the role models that that we have to try to be, you know, to help each other, not compete with yes. each other. Yes, and you know I think on that um, this is where men have have an advantage due to time, due to the amount of time that we've been the gender who's been allowed to compete. Because men are really good at ritualizing competition, right? You do men do it in sports. You know, two men will play mm-hmm. tennis with each other or, or football or even boxing. They'll go out and slug it out with each other. And then when it's over, they'll, they'll shake it off and, um, and, and, and go get a beer together. Uh, mm-hmm. Similarly, business rivals, you know, they can be cutthroat with each other and yet still be part of the same country club or same old boys mm-hmm. old boys network. So this sort of ritualization of rivalry and competition makes it easier for men to hit each other hard because they know it's still going to be it, it's done within this framework that still makes it okay. Um you could almost even think let me go back to goddesses again. You know, if you think of male gods of war they tend to be gods of armies. They're gods mm-hmm. in the sense of organized warfare. But if you mm-hmm. think of the female goddesses of war, like Sekhmet, you know, they are goddesses of fury when blood runs and there's no relenting, right? You know, mm-hmm. I would way rather be in a battle with Ares 
the uh, the Greek god of war <laughs> than Sekhmet, the Egyptian goddess of war. Hey, the sea will cut you, right? Yeah, that, that's no ferocity. There's no ritualized element. It's just fury, right? And so I think yeah, that's the for fury and the ferocity. Competition. Yeah. Well, but, and it's almost it's almost scarier. There's a chaos about it. Right. Um, right. You know. Uh, yeah. Rather than this, the feel of uh, organized warfare. Um, yeah, maybe you don't know what you know, uh, which way it's coming from, or how it's going to hit, or what it's going to look like. <laughs> yes. So, so I think that's something that women still have some time to grow into to learn how to compete with each other um, better in the yeah. professional arena. Okay. Well, um, so back to uh, the Master Communicator's Handbook. Um, uh, what, what, what would you? What sort of impact do you want the book uh, to have for readers? Well, we really want this to be a book that people keep by their their desk, they keep on their desk, or keep by their bedside table. So whenever they're doing something professionally, uh, whether they're they're a speaker or a workshop leader or giving presentations or or um, speaking to a group of their employees or in a community group, that this is a resource book for them. And we cover the whole gamut from the different skills that you need as a communicator, from being a, an influencer to changing people's minds to having a vision to answering questions, delivering speeches, creating rapport. It's a whole gamut. And we want this to be a resource book, a go-to book, for whatever communications challenge you face. Because if you can communicate well, you have a much better chance that what you're trying to do, in as much as it involves others, that what you're trying to do will find allies, will find collaborators, will help you create alignment and win, and win the day. It, to, me, to, to me, to Teresa and I, it all starts with communication. So, does, uh, so it covers uh, how to do all of those different things you mentioned? Yes, and and more. Uh, what about negotiating a raise, for instance? <laughs> so I, <laughs> oh, that's a whole book in itself. Yeah, it, it is a whole book in itself, and I'd say the one thing there's a lot written on negotiating, so we don't go much into detail with that. We do spend time talking about queuing, which is a similar thing in that you're. It's a way of telling people what you want them to do in a way that makes it very easy for them to say yes. Okay. okay. It's a way of shaping the perceptions of others. Yeah, 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 that makes total sense um, because you want to bring them around to your way of thinking, so that's that's your task. Exactly, and and I can give you a very interesting example of this that we often use and then do in our workshops. You know, in any organization or, or business, People judge each other really, really quickly. It's almost as if you walk around with a bunch of sticky notes stuck to your front mm. with words on them, with labels on them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cheerful, lazy, uh, bossy, um, so, you know, social, fun, um, n- not trustworthy. So people make judgments, and they very quickly put those stickers on you. Once those stickers are on you, they can start to spread. You know, you hear people saying at the water cooler, "Oh, Carol, yeah, no, she's um, she's kind of messy." 
right? And so mm-hmm. once a word is out there attached to you, it can really become strongly attached to you. And most yeah. people don't pay any attention to this. But the sad thing is that those words stuck to you have a big impact when it comes to deciding if you should get a raise, deciding if you should get a promotion, deciding um, if you're right for a particular plum assignment. So one of the things that we speak about in one of our courses is how can you begin to take charge of the sticky notes that are on you? Yeah, and so because it's, basically- it's almost as if every time you communicate, you know, when you get the floor, so to speak, you know, when you get an opportunity to shine, it's an opportunity to reinvent yourself. Exactly, exactly. And most people don't take that, well, to invent yourself, most people don't take that opportunity. So cueing, which is a way of um, shaping others' perceptions of you, can be as simple as using adjectives that accurately describe your good qualities in such a way that other people use that as the sticky note that they put on you. Now, we we coach people that you have to be careful to do this in a delicate way. You you know, you can't um you can't just walk up to your coworkers and say, "Guess what? I'm meticulous about my work." Uh, <laughs> right? You know, "Guess what? I'm a leader." It sounds kind of ridiculous if you do it like that. But if in answering questions that they may have, you use those key words like meticulous or leader, then they can start to see you that way. So someone might say, um, you know, I I, I see that you've been tasked with leading the team um, on on this, and, and I'd like to know what your plans are. And you might be able to say, you know, to me, leadership is a really important quality, and I am looking at leading this team. And I'm I'm looking to see how, as a leader, I can really bring out the best in each of the people in my in the team. Right. So you use that word so that people connect that word with you and who you are. Now, for this right. to work, you also have the have to have the actions that support that work. So if you're, you know, actually lazy, <laughs> it's not likely that you're going to be able to come across as a leader at the same time. So the words need to be accurate and they need to match your actions. But if you don't use the words, people might not make the right association. Interesting. So that's one you know, example Tim- of how you can use language. Uh, um, you were you were about to give one, or you were saying that was one. No, no, no I was saying so. That's that's one example of how you can use language to influence the perceptions of others in the in the workplace. Well, you know, it, you you make me think of this little game. Well, my boss didn't realize it was a game, and I guess I'm, I'm telling tales out of school here. But um, I I knew for a fact that my boss thought uh, women, you know, were too emotional. You know, because mm. if something didn't, you know, they they were because they're not stoic. You know, they're going to speak up and they're going to say what they think, and and that was labeled emotional. So um, I start, you know, uh, it, with the property management that I do. You know, we have some vendors who are really good vendors, and we have some vendors who are real high maintenance. And mm-hmm. I started, I, I started choosing the word emotional. <laughs> to describe some of those vendors so that he would start to see them in the light I saw them because of the difficulty it was 
to work with them and also get across the idea that men are emotional too. It's not just women. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, uh, uh, you know, just a you know, just a little secret there. But uh, I had a little fun doing that. So um, I, I I don't know. I think I was successful. I don't know. Well, Tim, we probably have about uh, three or four minutes here. Um, how do you want to spend that? Is there anything you wanted to say about the book that I haven't asked you that you think may be important, or did you want to talk about change makers? Or I'd be glad to talk a little bit about uh, both both the book and change makers for um, for the book um, for your, your your listeners. The Master Communicator's Handbook is meant to be a tool to help whatever you're doing reach a bigger audience, be more persuasive, be more powerful, and create the change that you envision as possible for our world. Really, this book is a tool for helping to create the future. That's my that's my vision for uh, for this book. For for change makers, and thanks so much for asking, Karen. Um, this is an imprint dedicated to transformation. So. Um, anybody who's interested in transformation should certainly come and visit our website. It's changemakers-books.com, and on Facebook it's Changemakers Books. Changemakers Books. We'd love to have your listeners come and visit us. And if any of you are working on a book, or if you've got a great idea for a book that's transformational in intent. Keep us in mind, one of the things that we specialize in is publishing authors who aren't already published, aren't already famous. Uh, the publishing industry is a, is, a, is a rigged deck, and it's mostly rigged that makes it, in a way that makes it very hard for new voices to enter. And That's one of the things that my company, John Hunt Publishing, that, that owns um, the imprint, Changemakers, one of the things we really are working for is to give others a voice so that new ideas can come into being. Well, I know I've certainly appreciated that, and uh, I, I tell lots of my friends who are uh, planning to write books, um, you know, John Hunt is a place they should uh, uh, they should try first, you know, before they go the self-publishing route and just, uh, you know, automatically assume that um, that's the, what they're going to have to do because uh, they might not. Yep, yep, that's so true. And um is is well, Karen. You and I have a long history together with uh, with with uh, with change makers. But for me, really helping authors to get networked in with other authors, and helping them find avenues and venues to get the word about their work out. That's um, that's part of what we do, and it's part of what you do with your show, helping people get word out about your work too, about their work too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Tim, the book sounds great. Uh, honestly, it sounds like something I should have on my desk. <laughs> Please. Um, I, uh, and, and actually, we should all have, you know, because I, I think maybe we um, uh, we don't give communication the important uh, the important due that uh, it, it really does deserve. You know, we sort of just spew things out uh, without a filter, or sometimes uh, we don't say things the best way. Uh, we could, and you know, maybe we miss out on opportunities. And uh, and you know, like you said, you know, we if uh, it, it would be nice to be able to reinvent ourselves at our job uh, without having to go look for a new one because uh, you know maybe we haven't put our best foot forward and communicated you know who we really are. So uh, uh, lots of important stuff uh, we touched on tonight. So it sounds like a great book. Thank you so much, Karen. 
Well, um, please uh, tell uh, Teresa, I am sorry she didn't get a chance to join us tonight, but, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, having you back on the show some other time, uh, Tim, and uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for your time tonight, and thank you for uh, this jump into the pool of, um, you know, this this sort of writing. I mean, you have uh, so much experience. I'm glad you put it in a, in a format that... Uh, you know that can benefit us out there in the work world um uh so now you're you know helping with us with spirituality and you know these other genres so uh uh yeah thanks a lot thank you karen and um it's been lovely to be here in your virtual living room for another beautiful hour sharing it with you and with all of your listeners i so appreciate everybody who tunes in everybody who gets fed and nourished from the programs that you off that you uh that you offer what a great space. Uh, well, thank you, Tim. I really appreciate it. And uh, no doubt we will speak soon. So uh, have a good night and a good weekend. And, um, you know, until next time. All right. You too, Karen. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, I think Tim uh, gave us some food for thought there. Uh, when we all go to work tomorrow, we will probably be thinking a little bit more about uh what sort of transformation are we uh, putting into motion with our communication? How can we do it better? How can we sell ourselves and our ideas in a better way? Uh, well, we are coming to the end of the show, and uh, I want to make sure before I go tonight, you know about the mysteries of Mary Magdalene and the Divine Feminine Epic Journey Through France that is coming up in May with uh, author and intuitive Gloria Amendola. Well, Gloria is departing May 13th through 21st of this year, and uh, she's going to be taking this epic journey to ancient pilgrimage sites uh, dedicated to Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, Isis, Joan of Arc, uh, Queen Eleanor of Equitaine, and of course uh, Gaia, Mother Earth. And throughout uh, the pilgrimage, you'll visit uh, places of profound beauty uh, imbued with earth energy, um, which are valued by the guardians of the grail. Uh, destinations include uh, Lyon, St. Maximum, uh, uh, La Saint Baume, St. Marie de la Mer, uh, Rennes-le-Chateau, Montségur, Lourdes, Orléans, Chartres, and the journey ends in Paris on the night of a full moon, and no doubt uh, Gloria will have some sort of special event for that night. Now, Gloria is going to be on the show uh, in a few weeks, and she's going to talk more about this journey and Mary Magdalene and this the whole Grail legend. Uh, we haven't talked about that in a while, so it'll be fun to jump back into that and uh, see if there's any anything new and fresh uh, to find out about, uh, um, you know, that whole Mary Magdalene genre and uh, these mysterious places in uh, southern France, especially associated with Mary Magdalene. But um, if this is uh, a destination you've been wanting to uh, visit, uh, you might want to take it with Gloria. So uh, you can find out more uh, at her website, which is gloria Amendola. Dot com and that's a m e n d o l a uh she's also given a um uh email address if you want to contact her direct which is holy grail mary at gmail dot com and gloria amendola also has uh, a facebook page so uh three different ways to uh find out about um her her tours um 
And uh, I want to remind you that uh, I am making myself available uh, to give more talks and workshops. And, um, you know, I've I've asked uh, some of my friends, you know, how did they first hear about me? And uh, some of them say they first heard about my work through my books or they found YouTube interviews or my audio book or maybe uh, they know about the radio show. Uh, but the one answer that I hear more often, uh, people said they've heard about me because they've uh, seen me or heard about me speaking at uh, events like the Parliament or the American Academy of Religion or some conference or fair. Um, maybe you saw me in Fem, Women Healing the World. And, you know, I want you to know that while I do receive invitations uh, from community leaders, um, it, that a lot of my invitations also uh, originate from friends and fans. So if you have an idea uh, where I might be an appropriate speaker or you might be interested in chatting with me about me giving a talk to your community or some upcoming event, please get in touch. And uh, we can talk about all the different topics that uh, I give talks on, from women's issues and social justice uh, to goddess uh, culture and uh, the art of uh, sacred pilgrimage and sacred sites of the goddess. So keep that in mind. Keep me in mind. And to close the show tonight, uh, I'd like to close it with a quote from my Goddess Calling book, uh, Call, and, and it goes like this. The great she is challenging us to do what's right for the most of us, for the sake of humanity and the planet. So... Thank you very much. Uh, come phone bank for Bernie with us uh, this Sunday or any time from your own living room. And uh, keep listening. I'll be back with you uh, next Wednesday uh, speaking to Shauna Knight uh, about pagan leadership. Uh, thank you very much, listeners. Your gas in my tank. Uh, please keep tuning in. And good night. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs>